This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 10. When Preparation Meets Opportunity. Scars are souvenirs you never lose. The past is never far. Did you lose yourself somewhere out there? Did you get to be a star? And don't it make you sad to know that life is more than who we are? The Goo Goo Dolls. Name. In January of 1996, I was living in Rochester, New York. My band Exploding Boy had recently reformed after a year hiatus, which we all thought at the time was a permanent breakup. It felt to the three of us, Jason, Anthony, and myself, like we still had unfinished business. We started talking here and there about the possibility of getting back together. We decided to have a meeting over coffee one day to discuss things and to set some ground rules. And by the end of that gathering, we had all just basically admitted that we missed each other and wanted to play together again. And with that, we were off and running. We had started on a pretty large batch of songs prior to disbanding, which none of us really had any idea how to finish at the time. We had left them all in various stages of skeletal form when we had split up. So in that unfinished material, we had a jumping off point. Clues about how to move the band forward musically. None of us had any desire to repeat ourselves creatively. In the interim, as I mentioned previously, Anthony and Jason went off and formed a blues rock flavored project called Cream Engine. And after my brief six to eight month stint with the band Hard Rain, I had played with another Rochester band that was fairly big on the local scene at the time, called Officer Friendly. They had recently parted ways with their guitarist, a guy named Paul, and since I wasn't doing anything at the time, they asked me to fill in with them for some gigs until they could find a suitable replacement. Exploding Boy and Officer Friendly did countless gigs together over the years, flip-flopping, opening, and headlining slots. We all liked and respected the guys a lot, and we saw them as friends as well as peers. Joel, the bassist from Officer Friendly, in case you don't remember, would go on to join Exploding Boy when we moved to Northern Virginia and took the band on the road. Officer Friendly played considerably heavier music than Exploding Boy. While we leaned closer to bands like U2 and The Police, Officer Friendly sounded a bit more like 90s grunge acts Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. One of the strangest and most notable gigs I did with Officer Friendly was for the Rochester School for the Deaf called Deaf Stock. 
Rather than listening as hearing people understand it, deaf people experience or sense music through physical sensations. And just like people on the normal hearing end of the spectrum, this felt sense creates a different music experience for everyone. They feel the vibrations of the music. The show was held in a large venue that functioned most of the time as an ice hockey arena. There were two interpreters, one on either side of the stage, signing all the lyrics for the audience, made up mostly of deaf people. And they were definitely enjoying themselves. You could see it on their faces. But it was a very strange experience for the band, especially at the ends of songs. Deaf people do not applaud audibly. In the deaf community, applause typically takes the form of waving both hands in the air using a twisting movement. Since we were playing loud rock music in a large space, the last hit of these songs would just kind of crash and die out, and then nothing. It was bizarre, but it definitely opened my eyes to a wider reality of how people with certain disabilities experience entertainment. And we still gave it our all. John Gensler, the lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter for Officer Friendly and I, had also started an acoustic duo sometime earlier called Jarvis Redwine and we'd been playing gigs locally in bars and clubs for quite some time. The strength of our duo came not only from the fact that we were both strong guitarists and vocalists, having been the frontmen for both of our respective bands, but our voices worked in stark contrast to one another. John was more of a rough-around-the-edges rock singer, and I had more of a smooth, pop-sounding voice. Together, this combo was magic, and people everywhere in town seemed to love it. When I started playing with Officer Friendly, my guitar playing had already gathered a bit more rock muscle than I originally had in the early days of Exploding Boy, due largely to the influence of playing in Hard Rain with guitarist Rudy Valentino. Being that Exploding Boy was a three-piece outfit, I felt the need to use various guitar effects, mainly delays and echoes, to generate a fuller sound and to make sure that nothing we did ever felt or sounded empty. Hard Rain was a five-piece band and I found myself scaling back and more often just plugging a Les Paul or a Telecaster straight into an amp with only a few pedals, and just turning the amp up. In a larger group of musicians, you end up playing less. As I would find out many years later, the same principle applies equally to all bands, no matter how big or small. Less is most always more. The more space you leave, the bigger things end up sounding. It's almost counterintuitive. Officer Friendly's heavier aesthetic took my newfound confidence as a full-on rock player and effectively kicked it straight into the stratosphere. I took the most Spartan approach of my career with my guitar rig when I played with Officer Friendly. I just ran a Gibson Les Paul into a fuzz pedal and straight into a Marshall combo amp. Full tilt rock. No bullshit. I had moved from using mostly Fender Strats and Tellys to playing Gibson Les Pauls almost exclusively at that point. Les Pauls are much more muscular-sounding guitars well-suited for straight-ahead rock. I found this aesthetic incredibly freeing at the time, as I was so used to live performances with Exploding Boy back then being a delicate tap dance. I had a lot of different pieces of gear to keep track of. It was a routine of activating and deactivating guitar effects on the floor in front of me with my feet, as well as trying to sing lead the best that I could and fronting the band all at the same time. It was really hard for me to find little windows in the songs and in each set to move around. I never felt quite as free as I would have liked to. It always just felt like I had so much to do. With all this newfound swagger and freedom as a guitarist, when Exploding Boy had reformed, I now knew exactly what the unfinished batch of songs we had started prior to breaking up needed in order to make them all work. 
two words. Rock guitar. Exploding Boy version 2.0 rocked much harder, and we came back into the world with a vengeance and a confidence only hinted at in our previous incarnation. It was like we had something to prove, and nothing was going to stand in our way. Our new music was nearly the complete antithesis to the light rock and pop sounds we captured on our debut album, New Generation. Looking back now, with decades of perspective, both versions did have their merits, even though we were staging a very public rebellion and rejecting our earlier work. We, of course, were aware that we were risking alienating the considerable audience that we had won just over a year earlier with our local radio hits, Charity and I Want to Be Where You Are. Both of those songs leaned more towards a commercial pop rock sound. In the end, we felt that the audience that really mattered would stick with us and follow us on our exploration of heavier sounds. If we lost some folks along the way, they probably weren't true fans to begin with. So we soldiered on undaunted. I only know now, after years of reflection, that this meant that we were a real rock band. Our artistry was as valid as anything else out there in the pantheon of rock music. All the great bands that came before us, and nearly every single band that I've ever loved and admired at one point staged similar rebellions as it pertains to the work that came before it. Sometimes the only way forward creatively is to burn the ships you came in on. And that's exactly what we did. My day job in 1996 was as a delivery driver for a company called Kinko's. Now it's known as FedEx Office Print and Ship Services. I spent my days delivering paper stock to other Kinko's stores in the Rochester area and also delivering huge copying jobs to local law offices and other companies such as Kodak and Xerox. The job was flexible and low-pressure enough to allow me to play gigs at night and on weekends with Exploding Boy, our side cover band Strictly Alternative, and my acoustic duo Jarvis Redwine. I stayed really busy back then, and I loved it. One particular day, I had arrived back at Kinko's from my first few runs of the day early in the afternoon. One of the store managers at the time, who was aware of my musical extracurricular activities, came running up to me with a huge smile on her face. She said, You are done for the day. I was immediately confused. She said excitedly, Your bassist Anthony just called a little while ago and said you just got booked to open for the Goo Goo Dolls tonight at Alfred State College. We are going to cover the rest of your deliveries for the day. Go have fun. I was so thankful that she was cool about this. Most of the time working in a job like that, you don't get anywhere near that kind of treatment. As it was with every side job I've ever had, I always worked really hard to gain the trust of my employers. I let them all know straight out of the gate that my first priority was always going to be music. I also let them know that as an employee, when I was on the clock, they would get 110% from me. And whenever I was available, they would be able to get me to work. I always said yes to extra shifts when they came up, I rarely, if ever, called in sick unless I was actually sick, and I always did whatever was required of me in any particular job accurately, efficiently, and professionally. My parents are fully to thank for this, along with my early years working in the family bakery. The fact that the Goo Goo Dolls also happened to be at the height of their early stardom was not hurting things where my manager at work was concerned. Their huge breakout hit song name was literally everywhere at the time. And since they were originally from nearby Buffalo, New York, and used to play in Rochester all the time in their early days, 
I think they were getting just a little bit more home state love, pride, and support thrown their way also. When I arrived home that day and managed to get Anthony on the phone, he told me that our booking agency had received a desperate call from the promoter at Alfred State College that was putting on the Goo Goo Dolls show that evening. They needed a band willing to get there as soon as possible to play a set to open the show. The Goo Goo Dolls flight from wherever their previous gig had been was significantly delayed and they'd be arriving very late. I don't recall who the opening act was supposed to be, but they also apparently had a travel snafu. They got held up at the Canadian border and would be unable to make the gig altogether. Therefore, the promoter was scrambling to cover his ass. He had a sold-out college show on his hands and had no entertainment. Thankfully, we were the first on the call list that day at our booking agent's office, so, as it was, exploding boy to the rescue. Alfred State College was about an hour and 20-minute drive from Rochester, so we all rendezvoused at our rehearsal room that afternoon, quickly loaded our gear up, and headed out on the road. We enlisted our drummer Jason's younger brother Chris to come along with us to give us any additional help we might need in loading in, dealing with merch sales, and manning our trusty video camera to get a little footage of this upcoming momentous event. As I mentioned previously, we documented everything. A short video of some highlights of this gig opening for the Goo Goo Dolls at Alfred State College exists on YouTube. Just look up Exploding Boy, Goo Goo Dolls, and you'll find it. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 people were expected to be arriving not long after we got to the Alfred State campus, so time was of the essence. The venue was a college gymnasium repurposed for the evening to play host to a rock and roll show. A large stage, enormous lighting rig, and a massive PA were all set up and waiting when we got there. The Goo Goo Dolls crew greeted us warmly when we arrived and offered us assistance getting our gear loaded in and getting a sound check done in record time. It was very clear that they were all nervous about the fact that the Goos would be getting in so late and that their regularly scheduled opening act wouldn't be showing up at all. I have a vivid memory of their tour manager pulling us aside shortly after we had sound checked. He asked us, So, exactly how long can you guys play for? How long do you want us to play for? At that point, we had well over an hour and 30 minutes worth of original material and I'm sure we could have done at least an hour or more of cover material on top of that. Maybe more. But surely they wouldn't want us to play for that long as an opener. Right? Wrong. Their tour manager looked relieved when we told him we'd be happy to play for as long as they wanted. We were all just really excited to be there. He said, All right, it's looking like my guys are going to be here really, really late. So if you could do at least an hour, that would be awesome. If we need to stall for more time, we'll let you know. But basically, just play for as long as possible. You guys are really saving our asses here, so thank you. And just so you know, this kind of thing never happens. As an opener, you're never told to play for longer. It's much more likely that you'll have to cut your set shorter, if anything, to accommodate a headlining act. We all knew this was a great opportunity for us to win some new fans, so we were going to take advantage of it and milk it for all that it was worth. Luckily, we were a well-oiled and very well-rehearsed machine at that point, and we were going to make this sold-out crowd of several thousand Goo Goo Dolls fans our bitches. We took the stage that night with shared confidence and aplomb as we blasted into the opening salvo of our blistering original song, I Give You Back. 
And within seconds, the crowd began undulating and swaying together, almost as if it had collectively become a single, writhing organism. People began crowd surfing almost instantly. One person would be thrown up over the top of this giant wave of humanity, and then would submerge as another got thrown up, and so on. This continued for our entire set. We had never had this kind of response before. Our new heavier sound was working on these people. And it was incredible. I was playing so aggressively that night due to a surge of adrenaline based on both the size and response of the crowd that I broke a string on my main Gibson Les Paul during one of the first handful of tunes. I switched to my backup Les Paul and handed my guitar off to Jason's brother Chris. I told him where to find my spare strings and asked him to try and change out the broken one the best that he could. I had only brought two guitars with me that night, so I needed them both to be ready just in case anything else happened. Chris, as luck would have it, played a little guitar himself at the time, but I'm not sure whether or not he knew exactly how to restring one, and especially not under the pressure of having to get it done really quickly. Thankfully, the Goo Goo Dolls guitar tech was sort of helping to coach him through this process. No sooner had Chris gotten one string changed out than I had broken another one on my backup guitar, so we made a swap. I tuned up and bantered with the audience as I did it, and then we blasted into another song and got the people moving and jumping once again. This rotation of instruments due to string breakage would happen for our entire set. I think I broke more strings that night than ever before on a single performance. Poor Chris must have changed at least five broken strings, or maybe more. This may not sound like a lot, but it sure as hell is if you've almost never done it before. Chris wasn't given much time or warning with any of it. He had to be on his toes. And I'm proud to say he handled it like a total pro. I was grateful to have him there that night. Adrenaline is one hell of a powerful drug. Speaking of which, each of us were only slightly familiar with this level of adrenaline rush. We had, of course, played to several thousand people before on many occasions, but the energy of a club show is much more contained and refined than a show in a larger venue. It's almost more relaxed in a weird way. Larger venues and larger audiences, for some reason, seem to focus the energy in on you more. And if you're not careful, it can get away from you in a hurry. That night, we were all riding the adrenaline dragon the very best that we could. We were doing everything in our power to present our best version of controlled chaos to the audience. And as far as the sold-out crowd was concerned, we could do no wrong. They loved us. I think the obvious technical difficulties that I was experiencing with breaking strings every few minutes had also functioned to get everyone in the room on our side. I flat-out told the crowd how we had been called in at the last minute to play the gig, and how we basically had no crew and only one tech. This only served to make them love us more. They were all behind us and were rooting for us to succeed. We continued to win them over at every turn. By the time we were told that the Goo Goo Dolls had arrived and that we could finally stop playing, we had delivered a full hour and a half set of our best original material, plus a couple fun cover songs that we threw in just for the hell of it. It almost felt as if we were co-headlining with the Goo Goo Dolls that night. And the crowd read it that way. Jason and Anthony's girlfriends had arrived shortly before we took the stage and took charge of selling our merch at the booth out front, 
And we quickly sold out of every single item we had that night. And a ton of new fans signed up on our mailing list also. Blissfully unaware of how things are for famous musicians, mostly because I wasn't one, but also because I just wasn't thinking, I made the mistake of trying to walk out to the merch booth after our performance to see how we had done and to catch a bit of the opening part of the Goo Goo Dolls set from out front. This seemed simple enough. I wasn't famous anywhere else in the world, but in that packed gymnasium, what I failed to realize or to fully comprehend was that we had been the focal point for everyone there for the previous hour and a half. As a result, I barely made it past the barricade before I was absolutely mobbed. There was a throng of people all wanting autographs or a second of my time to say hi and tell me how much they loved our show. It was startling at first, but I would be lying if I said it wasn't also pretty cool. I got a little more used to this kind of thing years later once I had moved to Nashville and started playing with Chuck Wicks. It would happen a lot more often. I remember feeling weird the very first time someone asked me for an autograph and a photo after a show. I turned to the keyboard player on that gig, a friend of mine named KG, and I said, man, it's weird that they would want my autograph. I'm just a no-name side guy. KG stopped me immediately. He said, oh, no, 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 no. Don't ever tell him that Santa Claus ain't real, man. I had never thought of it that way. And that piece of advice stuck with me. Just give them what they want. Don't ruin whatever fantasy they might have in their head about musicians and music. I once had a person at a Chuck Wicks gig hand me a black t-shirt and a black Sharpie, expecting me to sign it. I just looked at the guy and said, Are you sure, man? I don't think this is going to show up. He just stared at me blankly and said, I don't care. I just want you to sign it. Okay, dude. Absolutely. My pleasure. And once I was playing with Jameson Rogers, there would often be nights where people gathered either in front of the stage or at the side of the stage after the gigs, asking for photos or autographs or just wanting to talk for a bit. I always happily agreed and would take just as much time as people wanted. A little time and sincere attention goes a long way. After all, that's part of the job, whether you like it or not. And whenever you work for an artist or band as a sideman, you represent that artist or band on and off stage. So it's very important not to act like a dick. I never once sought this kind of attention out, however. And whenever I could get my ass off stage and onto the safe haven of the tour bus, I would move as quickly as possible to make that scenario happen. I took a little time at the Goo Goo Dolls gig and signed a few things and talked with a few people, and as soon as the goos blasted into their first song, I used that as my excuse to say goodbye, and then quickly ducked back behind the barricade and made my way to the backstage area. The Goo Goo Dolls were about a third of the way through their set, and suddenly, I noticed some commotion backstage. Several members of their tech crew came running frantically toward me with concerned looks on their faces. Hey man, this is gonna sound crazy. Do you have a guitar amp we could borrow from you? Of course. What's up? All of Johnny's amps just blew up. They all shit the bed. Nothing is working. I jumped into action and grabbed my guitar amp and followed Johnny's tech up onto the stage, 
The band had shifted gears and were doing some acoustic numbers while I helped their crew to get things handled. We plugged my amp in and hooked it up to Johnny's speaker cabinets, and they were able to continue their show. Johnny used my amp for the rest of their set. After the fact, I had found out that he had just had his guitar amps modified by someone, and something went catastrophically wrong, and they all stopped working at the same time. Exploding Boy to the Rescue. Again. After the show, Johnny found me and thanked me profusely. He also asked if we had a demo CD or tape because he wanted to check our music out. We obliged and gave him one, and he mentioned something about starting his own record label at the time, but we never heard anything back from him after that night. As we were on the way out of the parking lot, Robbie, the bassist, came running up to our vehicle and knocked on the window. He gushed and offered us a similar expression of gratitude as everyone else had that night. You guys saved the whole thing tonight. Thank you. I never met drummer Mike Malinin that night, but many years later, upon moving to Nashville, I actually bumped into him at a local show and I introduced myself. He had been the drummer during all of the Goo Goo Dolls' most successful years, and I still maintain that his signature drumming was a large part of the success of that band. He played on all the hit songs that most people know and love, and he's still one of my favorite drummers. Mike was unceremoniously let go from the band at some point after being with them for 19 years, and I don't know the exact reason. I don't know whether he does either. It wasn't an amicable split. Out of respect for Mike, I never really asked him. Bands are hard. They're like marriages. And the relationships can be very delicate. I know that firsthand. I consequently asked Mike to be on a previous podcast that I used to do that was set up in more of an interview format, and he accepted. We had a really great chat for that show, and after that, we became friends. We've kept in touch regularly and have even discussed trying to do some kind of playing together at some point. Although, it hasn't quite materialized yet. I hope it does. He went on to be the band leader and drummer for country legend Tanya Tucker for a while, and is still very much out there working, just like me. One of the best things about living in Nashville for me is that more than several people that I once looked up to have now become my peers, and in some cases even, my friends. I had a similar thing happen with another drummer, a guy named Ed Toth, who now plays with the Doobie Brothers, but used to be the drummer for a band called Vertical Horizon, which was one of my all-time favorite bands of the 90s. Through these moments, all of our webs are inextricably tangled. One or only several degrees of separation from one another, and that's it. All that any of us can do is to continue to prepare ourselves in hopes that a moment of opportunity will one day arrive and catapult us into yet another new experience. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me. Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M I S T E R M I C H A E L J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.